armor of God. This was a spinoff from the spiritual warfare series that we did. But if you would, open your Bibles up to Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. I'll give you just a second to flip there. We have them up on the screen, just so you know. Um, I am going to go a little bit slower today. I know I, I typically pack so much information and have a time limit that I want to get it in. I am going to try to slow down today. I'm not promising that, but I am going to try so that we can stay together. So Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. When we have looked at this and we've read this passage every week and we've gone piece by piece in this armor, just explaining what it is. We start in verse 14, having girded your waist with truth, the loin belt of truth, and why that was such a significant piece of the armor. Because it wasn't anything that would stand out if they were just walking down the street. But it was literally the piece that held everything together. It was the fact that the breastplate would tuck into it. The shield and the sword were both attached to it. And everything connected to make it a, almost a single piece of armor when it was in use. And it's significant that we look at how Paul used these illustratively. The loin belt of truth tells us that everything that we have from God is founded in truth, which is significant in the day and age that we live today. Is there such a thing as absolute truth, absolute morality, meaning that there is both truth and morality that transcends uh, all people across the world? In other words, that it is always wrong to murder babies for fun. It's always wrong. Nobody would ever question that that in any way is right. Is it wrong what just happened in Paris this week? Because if there is no absolute truth, then it is just my opinion versus their opinion. And then they have a place that they can stand on to argue. But of course there's absolute truth. What they did was wrong. And we can believe that and we can know that. So there's truth. And then the breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate would hold together all up here. It was made of two different pieces that attached. And it protected the vital organs. Any wound in this area is almost always fatal because there's so much going on here. And it would protect it. It was very strong. It was very ornate and beautiful. The righteousness that God provided for us was very... It's, it's the most awesome thing that He could have done. is making us right before Himself because we can't do it. Only He can. And so then you got the shot, shoot, ah, putting the shoes of the gospel of peace, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. These shoes were not just typical shoes. These things were a weapon. They were made of bronze and brass. They had spikes on the bottom that were, had twofold purpose. One was to give you sure footing. The other was to wreak havoc. When they would walk into a place, they'd walk on these cobblestone roads and they'd march in unison and the sound could be heard for a long distance. It would strike fear in anybody that heard that coming. 
It would plant, they could plant their feet when they were in battle and not have to worry about being pushed around. They didn't have to worry about that because they had a good foundation. It's the same thing here. The gospel brings peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what takes us through. It's amazing how these all are so illustrative. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. We talked about that a lot of times. Above all, we reread that and we're like, okay, that's got to be the most important, right? That's not what it's talking about. It's saying above all, in other words, above everything else, that shield is in front of you, protecting you from these darts that the enemy sent. And if you remember, we talked about the different kinds of arrows that was used at that time. You have some arrows that look just like the ones we use today, but the one that this is referring to that looked just like that arrow, but had some chemicals inside of it that upon impact would ignite in flames. And if you remember that shield, they would soak in water. It was made of, of different animal skins and leathers and things like that. They would soak it in water so as soon as it hit and burst, it would ignite. But the key there is that they didn't know what kind of arrow was being shot at them until after it landed. And so you have to be prepared. Our faith protects us against all the nonsense that goes on in this world. If you're living in Paris at this time, you may be able to be questioning right now whether God is real. God, how could you allow that to happen? Look at us in 9-11. God, how could you allow this to happen? But yet our faith says, you know what? It's because of sin that this happened. It's because there's evil that exists. And God cannot be and allow moral free agents if He's going to take away that because then He takes away choice. He can't. So it all lines up with the Scripture. Where did I leave off? The helmet of salvation of what this thing looked like. This thing was for pretty boys, right? You remember it had that giant plume made of feather and horse hair so it could stand out. Again, it had a lot of carvings in it, very ornate. It attached into the breastplate to protect their neck. But this is the helmet of salvation. This helmet protects your mind. One thing that we have to have is firm foundation in our mind that we truly are what God said we are. That we are born again, that we are saved, and we are His righteousness, right? Okay, the sword of the Spirit, which is what we talked about, which is the Word of God. It's the sword. There's many different swords that they use, but the one that they used specifically had, was sharp on both sides. They went to this. It had a curve in the top, and when they stuck it into somebody, if you remember what I said, they'd give it a twist, pull it out, and stuff would come with it. Kind of gross to think about. But this thing was very, very dangerous. But the Bible says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, even dividing from the mind and the spirit. And if you remember, when we talk about the spiritual warfare stuff, where is the battlefield? It's in the mind. It is separating our ideas from God's ideas, from our plans to God's plan, from our will to God's will. It separates that. How do we know what's the will of God? We filter it through that sword, through the Word, to say, does this line up with what God had to say? And then the last part, and this is where we took off last week, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. And talking about prayer, what's unnoticed here is the fact that this doesn't have anything specifically tied to it like every other piece of the armor. But anybody that knows their Roman history, knew the army at the time, would pick up on what was happening because they always carried a lance. And there wasn't just one lance or a spear, whatever you want to call it. There was many. And they had all of these things. They would carry five short ones, one long one at a minimum. And they had different ones that they would use, the Calvary and whatnot. And he, Paul is comparing this to prayer. He's showing us here that there's no one type of prayer that is perfect. There's all these different kinds that God has provided for us that have different purposes. 
And that is where we left off. Just like every spear had a specific purpose, every prayer has a specific purpose. Sometimes they intertwine. We started last week with the prayer of consecration. This is something where a major change or is happening or the beginning of something. The easiest illustration of that would be when someone gives their life to Christ. What are they doing? They are praying a prayer of consecration. I am consecrating myself before you, Lord. That I am changing my ways. I seek your repentance. I accept the salvation that you offer as a free gift. I receive it now. I am making a change in my life. I will no longer walk in the way that I was. It's making a change. Sometimes you do this when you're making a big change in your life. You're, you're getting ready to go do something. You're getting ready to step out into an area of something different. So that's the one. The next one was the prayer of pet- petition. And this was expressing a need, not a physical need, but a spiritual need, something that we simply need to exist. Just, just the bare bones. This isn't, Lord, I want a new house, a boat, uh, I want a Maserati, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, p- pick whatever you want. Lord, I need some new guns. It's hunting season and the deer are everywhere. You know, it's not talking about that. It's like, Lord, what do I need to simply survive? And this is a prayer of desperation. It's a prayer of saying that I am not good enough on my own. I need you, Lord. I can't do this on my own. I need you. It's the prayer petition. The last one we talked about last week was the prayer of authority. And this one gets a little weird for us because one who prays this is praying with incredible confidence, almost demanding something of God. And we can demand things of God if we know the promises of God. And so if you would, flip over to John 15 and verse 7. John 15, verse 7 says this, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. And so we looked at this and we said, Okay, God, I want this, I need that. It's almost demanding. And we say that, but yet when someone comes and gives their life to Christ, we never waffle on that. We're never like, okay, you know... Can I have that, God? No, why? It's a promise from Him. If you do this, I will do that. You saw that a lot in the Old Testament. They would set up these uh, stones and things as an altar to God as a remembrance of the things that they were asking for and thanking Him. But the purpose and the premise behind all of this is that all prayer must be based on a promise from God. I'm going to say that again. All prayer must be based on a promise from God. If it's not, then we are not praying the will of God. God promises a whole lot of different things, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. You can tell in the life of somebody who is constantly in prayer. You can tell if you ever turn on Christian music on your radio. Listen to the lyrics in the songs. You can tell the difference between somebody who is very prayerful and knows the Word versus somebody who is really skilled at writing music. Because there is a difference. I have a good friend of mine who travels around the country. He's a singer-songwriter. He's incredibly talented. It blew me away. I went out to his wedding about 15 years ago. No, not quite that. 10 years ago, I think. Something like that. Anyway, and so he pulls out this song that he wrote to play for his wife as a surprise. People with talent do those kinds of things, right? I don't possess that ability. I started playing guitar years ago. I was 16 years old because I said, I'm going to write music. I've almost finished my first song, you know. 20 years later almost. So anyway, but, but here it is. He pulls this song out, and it was mind-blowing. It was so good. 
So it would battle any love song out there. And I looked at it, I was like, man, that is incredible. I said, how long did it take you to put this together? He's like, um, 10 minutes. And I just walked out. I was done. I couldn't believe it. But here's a man, he, he's, he's a pastor, he's in prayer all the time. And these words, these lyrics just bubble up in him. He said it just, it's just easy for him. He can just put it together, put the, I mean, it just happens. But he's always praying. He knows the word. It's, it's incredible. God loved King David. You know why? David was a songwriter. And where was David's heart? It was always towards the Lord. Always. All the time towards the Lord. Even after, I mean, immediately after he screwed up. God, I'm sorry. I, I repent. You know, things like that. Our prayers have to include God's word. That's the bottom line. They have to. Look at Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43 and verse 26 says this, Put me in remembrance. This is God talking. Put me in remembrance. Let us contend together. State your case that you may be acquitted. What is God telling us here? Remind him of his word. I heard for years people doing this stuff. And it used to bug me, as if God doesn't know what the Bible says, right? I mean, you've got an example in, in the Gospels where Satan knows what the Bible says. Surely the guy who wrote the Bible knows what the Bible says. So why would I have to do that? Why would I remind God of His Word? That's what He wants us to do. Because when we remind God of His Word, that means that we know what His Word says. That we, our faith is in the truth and that promise. It's hearing and accepting what you hear as truth. We'll remind God of His Word. And let me show you an example in the book of Acts. Flip over to Acts chapter 4 if you, if you want. You don't have to. It is up on the screen. But I want you to underline a couple things and look what they're doing here. Starting in verse 18 of Acts chapter 4. And we're going to jump around just a little bit. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. These are all the Pharisees, all the religious leaders saying, you guys got to quit doing this, do whatever you want, but you got to quit teaching in the name of Jesus because that went contrary to their system. And then over in verse 21 it says, So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of, of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. So in other words, they said, okay, we don't find anything lawfully, anything legally that we can detain you on. We're going to let you go, but please just knock it off. But then you jump down to verse 23. And this is what it says. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And so when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Did God know that? Of course he knew that. Who by the mouth of your servant David have said... Why did the nations rage, and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth who took their stand, and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. Now here's the interesting thing. They approach God in prayer after what just happened, and they're reminding God of not only the things that He did, Lord, you're the one who created the heaven and the earth, the seas and all that are in them. But then they go to a passage right out of, I think it's Psalm 2, Psalm 1 or 2. And they're reminding God, oh, here's what you said, here's what you did. This is right out of the mouth of your, of your servant David. They're reminding the Lord of the psalm that described the situation that they were, they were in against the Lord and against His Christ. These kings, these rulers, they were against all of that. And they're reminding Him of that. They're praying, God, show us how we can overcome this and how we can be more effective with the things that we do. They came to the Lord with a promise that He had made. 
And that's the key, is that our prayers have to be grounded inside of the Word, the promises of God. And so with the three that we, we've talked about last week, we're going to talk about two more. The first one being is, is the prayer of agreement. It's the prayer of agreement. If there are two people that are involved in any situation that are in equal authority of some capacity, then they have to be in agreement, right? Imagine two business partners. What happens when they no longer agree with the direction of the company? It does not go well. Look at Steve Jobs with Apple back in the 80s, right? They didn't like the direction he was going, so they canned him. So what did he do? He, go off, he goes off to Pixar and makes them a rock star, right? Blows that company up, and then they come crawling back. You think it was a cheap proposition to get Steve Jobs back? Absolutely not. They went in different directions. And thank God for Steve Jobs because of him we have Apple products, iPhones, iPads, all those wonderful things that the Lord has bestowed upon us. You guys have no idea. You don't care. Whatever. I care. I am very thankful. I actually watched a guy ask Steve Jobs in his heart one time. He was so amazed with what he did. That's a joke. I'm just kidding. 1 Peter 3 talks about this, this prayer of agreement. In verse 7 says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife, as to the weaker vessel, and as to being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. What is he saying here? Be in agreement with your wife. Don't forsake the things that she said. Right? Amy, if you would like to step out for a few minutes, that would be fantastic. But, 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 but in all seriousness, right? Men are prideful beings. We know all. We, we were smarter. We're definitely stronger. We're not better looking, and we can accept that, but that's okay. But here's the deal. It's that I really think that this prayer of agreement was intended to have a husband and wife in mind because these two have to be walking in agreement in all things. How do you discipline your children? That's something that you need to be in agreement for. Where do you live? You have to be in agreement for those things. And this is what God's saying is that we have to come together with one mind, one heart, one purpose. There's been many a times that my wife, my wife is more sensitive to things than I am because I'm kind of stubborn and hard-headed. And I'll just bulldoze right over something. And she also reads people a lot better than I do. I mean, the, I, I'll never forget the first time she met somebody and she's like, there's something not right there with them. And it wasn't until it, eight to ten years later that that unright thing comes out. How she recognized that, I'll never know. But a, uh, women are just natural. This is the way God designed them. It's more, more often than not, that's the case. When we are looking to move at different times in our lives, it's something that we have to agree on. You know, just as an example, we were getting ready. I, we, were, we knew it was time to leave, the la not the last church, the church prior to this. We'd been there for 10 years. We knew God was saying it's time to go. We went there with a two-year plan. It turned into 10. I've told you that part before. And so we went down and, and, and interviewed at a church in Topeka, Kansas. And this was kind of the, I'll say, dream job sort of thing, but not really. It was a large church, big facilities, lots of stuff, all the toys that I like, technology-driven, things like that. And so I'm excited, the fact that they even called me and wanted me to come down. You know, it was like, hey, yeah, that's great. So we go down there and we talk to them. Ten minutes in the first conversation, she's like, this isn't it. And I'm like, would you just slow your roll a little bit? Just, just, just chill. 
And so we were there through, the, the, through a couple of days, I think. And, and the more, you know, we prayed about it, so I just knew that this wasn't right, which didn't make any sense because on paper it was everything that you would want. And then we got the opportunity to go to Hastings. And we both go out there, and we knew that it was it. The moment where we both knew this is where God has us. We don't know how long, but this is where God has us. But it was a concern because this church was significantly smaller, which means their ability to pay us was significantly less. And my wife and I were accustomed to living on a comfortable lifestyle. We had a couple businesses that were pretty successful. And so it was like one of those things. But I knew that God said to go there. And so I said, all right, Lord, if you want us to go, I know that you're going to take care of all of our needs, and I don't have to worry. And he absolutely did. But we were in agreement in that place. Even coming here, it was the same thing. We were in agreement. We had to be. I've heard of pastors that have done the opposite of that. Their wife wasn't comfortable in a situation. They went anyway, and one of two things blows up, either the church or the marriage. Neither one of those are good, but it happens. We have to be in agreement. Amos 3.3 says, can two walk together unless they are agreed? We have to be of the same mind to pray this type of prayer. We have to come together. When two people should be praying about something, one is not enough. And I want you to think about that, because especially in a husband-wife situation, a business partner situation, when we come together as a church board and meet and talk about the different things that we have been praying about, the direction, the things that God wants us to do, we have to be in agreement on that. It's not that one trumps the other or anything like that. We're in agreement. So where two people should be praying, one is not enough. It's not enough to just say, okay, husband, you just pray about whatever the Lord tells you is good with me, or vice versa. It doesn't matter. So which brings to the question is, what do I do if, A, I'm not married, or I've, I, my spouse is an unbeliever. What do we do in those situations? They come. They happen. The biggest thing that you can do is find somebody who can stand in agreement with you in prayer, a prayer partner, if you will. You know, we don't leave our husbands or our wives because they're not an unbeliever. That's what the Bible says. You know, we, we pray for them. We're, we're an example to them of what a, a follower of Christ looks like. But we find somebody that we can pray with that will stand in agreement with you in the things that you need. Matthew 18, this is a very familiar verse. Matthew 18 and verse 19 says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Now, the context of this verse is dealing with church discipline, and you need to understand that. It is dealing with the discipline of how we handle these things. It's, it's right where before that it says, where two, or, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them, which gets prayed at these, these big conferences all the time. Let me tell you something. Where one person's gathered in the name of Christ, Jesus is there. It doesn't take two for that because he's inside of us. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where you go, he goes, which should make you think a lot about the places that you choose to go. But that's a whole other side subject. But this is dealing with church discipline, but there is a principle inside this that is very true. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. That anything, there is a qualifier that's not mentioned there, but if you follow the context of Scripture, what is the qualifier? Anything that is in line with the will of God. And where do we learn the will of God? From His Word. Anything that lines up with that, you can pray and you can stand together asking and believing by faith that God will and God can and God does provide. So getting to the next one is the prayer of commitment. The prayer of commitment. The prayer of commitment is very powerful. The prayer of commitment eliminates worry. 
I mean, all prayer eliminates worry, kind of. I mean, it should anyway. But this one is very effective because of the nature of it. Most prayers are very clear-cut. We know exactly what we're praying for. But look at Psalm 37 and verse 5. It says, Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. This is a prayer when you can't pray something specific. Because maybe you don't know all the details or how to handle the situation. But you're committing yourself to prayer on behalf of whatever that is. You might call this intercessory prayer. That's got a lot broader scope than just this one thing. But it gives you an idea. That sometimes you're praying for something and you don't know what it is. But it just said, I'll read that again. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in Him. And He shall bring it to pass. Who is He? He is God. Who brings it to pass? It's not you. Have you ever had the situation where somebody is believing God for something, either their rent paid or whatever, and they, they very nicely drop that little piece of information to you while you're standing there like, I'm just believing God that my rent is paid. And what are they doing? And whether they know they're doing this or not, they're doing it. They're, they're playing on the emotions of the individual. Because most of us, if we had the ability, knowing somebody's about to be kicked out of their house, are going to pony up the cash, right? We're going to help them out. Why? Because that's what we do. We, we support each other. We help each other out. If we have the means to do it, sometimes we don't. So what are we doing? But that means that you didn't put your trust in Him. You think you've got to help God out a little bit. And that's where the commitment part comes in. You're not committed to His, his ways. I know everybody in this room at one time or another has been used of the Lord in some capacity to meet a need that somebody was praying for, right? I know that we, my wife and I, have been recipients of that as well. I'll give you an example, but this was when I was very young. I think I was 16 years old. And I, I, I had jobs, but I never had a lot of money. I was, I was really good at spending it. I was better at spending it than I was making it at that time. Let's put it that way. But we were getting ready to go down to Ramah for something, and I didn't have any extra cash to buy anything. And I just said, God, I just, I believe you'll make a way, you know, something, you know, because I wanted some back then tapes, right, and stuff like that. And my wife and I, wasn't wife at the time, but we were, we were dating at this time, I think. Or maybe we weren't dating at this time. No, we weren't even dating yet. We were just hanging out. She hadn't committed yet. So I, sometimes you got to wear them down a little, but that's okay. It takes a while to get a woman to lower her standards, okay? So it just takes work. But anyway, so we were standing in the bookstore looking around, and I wasn't thinking. And all of a sudden, some guy comes up behind me, and he said, Hey, I don't want to sound weird or nothing, but I just want you to know the Lord told me to buy you whatever you want in this place. And I'm like, Are you serious? And he's like, Yeah, the Lord just told me. So you get it. I'm going to be standing over here when you're ready. Now, I have a, tr a hard time receiving in that way. So I picked up just a couple of things. It wasn't near what I'd really wanted, but I missed out on that. The guy has no idea what I was wanting for, but, but here it was. The Lord was providing something. As, as crazy and dumb as, and kind of a small scale as that is, because me getting a few extra tapes or anything like that is nothing in comparison to someone's rent being paid or mortgage being paid or groceries in the fridge or anything like that. But the point is there is that God uses these people, uses us as individuals, but we have to commit ourselves in faith that He is the one that provides. 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7 says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. How much of your cares are we to cast on God? All of them. 
We're leaving it in God's hands. God, I don't know what to do. I don't maybe know all the details of the situation, but I know that you are willing and able to do that which you said you would do. We're putting it all in His hands. But there are some things that we do not pray this way. There are some things that we don't leave out there that, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. You're just going to do it. Let me give you a couple of examples. The first one is healing. Why do we not just pray and leave it up to God? Because God promised. God said, by your stripes, we are healed. That's a promise of God. We don't have to say, God, I don't know what you're going to do here. I hope we can stand on. We can get into that prayer of authority and say, God, you said, you did, and you will. The biggest issue that comes down to healing, there's never a question in anybody's mind, no matter where they are theologically, whether they're a cessationist who no longer believes that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are around and operating today, or there's somebody that's kind of middle of the road and there doesn't matter. Whoever questioned whether God is capable of doing that. It's whether God is willing to do that. How many times have you heard somebody pray for somebody who has said, Lord, if it be your will, make them whole. What are they praying? They don't know their word. Because it is His will. It is His will. We don't have to ask these questions. We know the answers to these questions. So we take the authority that God's provided. The same with finances. Having our needs met. I'm talking getting along, living a life. That doesn't mean that you have new boats and new houses and and summer homes or anything like that. But having your needs met by God is a promise from Him. You do have a part to play in that one, though. It's called getting a job. That's a big part to play. You work. You show yourself approved. You do something. The other thing you don't do, don't spend more than you make. You know how many people I've seen deep in credit card debt? God, I just pray that you supernaturally take it away. Well, he didn't supernaturally spend it. Doesn't mean God can't do something. Doesn't mean God won't do something. But here it is. We've got to use common sense in this. These are two things that we should not pray like this. We pray with authority. We pray with confidence. But here's the, the bottom line. Is that if I am worrying about anything, whatever this burden happens to be, if I'm worried about it, then I've not turned it over to God. And that's true with any type of prayer. People naturally want to carry a burden because somehow we feel responsible. Men feel this when it comes to the area of providing for their family. I don't know what it is engraved in us, but we feel like we must. No matter what, I'm going to take care of my family. And yet God says, if you'll just believe me and trust me, I'll take care of the details. You just do your end. You know, we have this natural thing. We want it almost like we enjoy it. Almost like, well, Lord, I want to give this to you, but I want to keep a little piece of it because I like the attention from it. Or I like maybe feeling down. There are people that like this. I don't know why. But if you are worried about anything that you've given over to the Lord in prayer, then you are not standing in faith on a promise of God because otherwise that worry is gone. The one worry we never worry about is whether we're saved or not. We never worry about that. But anything that we are facing in a physical and immediate need, we worry all the time about. The biggest thing in the world that you see most of the time when it comes to finances, God, will you, can you, I don't know what we're going to do, how are we going to get by? You know, my wife and I are completely different. I'm almost the, oh, I am the glasses half full guy. I'm almost like the whole glasses all the way full guy, right? 
you know, because I'm always just, it's always going to work out. And that's easy for me. It's harder for her, right? Because she's a number person. She's like, this math does not compute, you know. And she's very logical when it comes to that. And I'm just like, it'll work out. And it's always worked out. Never in the way that we thought, but it has always worked out. So I'm right, she's wrong, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> I told you you had a chance to leave if you wanted. No, I'm just kidding. But when it comes to this kind of stuff, some of us carry more burden than we should because of this sense of responsibility that we have. We carry the burden on ourselves. I used to be like this. Every time there was something going on, I was like, if I just work more, if I just go do this, I'll pull us out. Look what I did. Look what I built. Look what I accomplished. And the truth is, we should be able to look what God did. Look what God built. Look what God accomplished. And He gave it all to me. All I had to do was be faithful. We have to let it go. and We have to give it to God. If you have the burden for something, that means that God doesn't. If you're carrying the load, that means that God isn't. If you want God to fix the problem, whatever it is, then you've got to give it to Him, and you've got to stand on the promises. If you're carrying the burden for yourself or for somebody else, that means that you have more faith in your worry than you do in God's ability to take care of it. Faith's a powerful too. All of these prayers, and we talked about this last week, should begin and end with thanksgiving. All of them. You see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. Thanksgiving must be an essential element to every type of prayer. There's also a prayer of thanksgiving, which we'll talk about next week. But the concept of being thankful for what God has done is something that we must share, we must demonstrate in every prayer. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God, be made known to God. You don't have to. That with thanksgiving there, it's almost like it's specifically isolated in the way that Paul wrote this. We're anxious for nothing, but in everything in prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. He could have just said it like that, and it's true that, but he says with thanksgiving, we make those requests known to God. We're thankful to God for His promises. Another one, 1 Timothy 2.1, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Giving thanks is the highest form of demonstrable faith that a person can have because you are thanking God for something before you ever see it. We thank God for our salvation before we ever see it manifest itself. It's the highest form of faith. You thank God for your healing before it may manifest itself. You thank God for meeting your needs before the money's there to do it. We thank God for this stuff ahead of time. In Romans 4, you see Abraham, he was strong of faith and he was believing God for a son. And the way he demonstrated his faith is that he gave glory to God for this son. It's like, I mean, Abraham kind of screwed up along the way, but he was immediately thankful. He was by faith receiving this promise in an impossible situation. They're in their 90s. Nobody's having babies in their 90s. It's a miracle of God. It's something there's no, no denying it. You know, they didn't have all the technology where they could stick 15, you know, impregnated seeds inside of you and see what happens, it wasn't around. It was a demonstration of faith. He was thankful for his son before he ever received him. When you begin to give thanks to God for something that hasn't showed up yet, 
We move beyond the mere request and answer phase. We move way beyond that because we're thankful that we just know. It's not God, will you, can I have, any of that kind of stuff. Okay, here you go. No, it's, it's, it's going to a whole other level, and we'll talk about this more next week. This Thanksgiving aspect of it is that we are thankful for all that God has provided, and we solely trust in His ability to perform on the promises that He has given us. Given us. Like I said, we do it with salvation, and we do it easily. You can't see salvation. You can see the effects of somebody who has given their life to Christ and as they're being sanctified and the changes in their life. But you never truly see a saved spirit. There's only one time that that comes into play. And at that point, it's too late if you were wrong. There's no turning back at that point. But we do it. We believe it. We accept it easily. We give it to God. Why am I telling you all of this? We need to give everything to God. We have to stand on His promises. This consecrate. There's so much in this world that we cannot control. We can't control it. We cannot control what ISIS does. We can't control it. But we can pray to God who can intervene. That God can take any disaster and use it for His glory. That people will see Him shining in, in such a terrible, terrible thing. It's God that we trust. It's God that we depend on. And we're thankful to Him for that. And with that, we're going to start communion. And we're going to take communion together. And you don't have to be a member of the church to take communion. All you got to do is be a believer. Someone who's given their life to Christ. You guys can come on up. If you want to go ahead and start passing the stuff out, that'd be great. But think about that. Think about what we do when we, we do this together, this isn't something that some religious thing that we just do because we don't have anything better to do or something that we're trying to do to kill time or anything like that. This is something that the Lord said that we do it in remembrance of Him and remembrance of the promise that He made, thanking Him for it. That not only was His blood shed that we could have forgiveness of sin, that His blood shed that we could be made righteous before Him by Him, not because of us, but because of Him. And that His body was broken so that we don't have to walk on this earth feeble and sickly and dying amongst all of the nonsense that's going on, but that we can be healed and be walking in health in the way that God originally designed us to be.